Would you stand with me now? I'm going to read for the sake of time just the first five verses out of Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib where, when she bore him. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you first for your presence with us for our time of worship. I am so grateful for the gathered church, worshiping our Lord together. We're thankful also, God, that as we've continued to progress during this pandemic, we've been able to host our student ministry, Disciple Now Weekend this spring. Thank you, God, that uh, students were able to gather and be instructed in the word and fellowship and form bonds with one another. Now, as we turn our attention to your word, God, we pray that you would help us. I pray specifically that you would help me today as we approach probably the most difficult passage in the 50 chapters of Genesis. Help me to be clear, not crass. Help us all, God, to understand that this story is here for a reason that instructs us in the repentance of sin the providence of our God, and your great justice in this world, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. If you have ever read through the book of Genesis, which I hope you have at some point in your own personal study of God's word, you have very likely gotten to Genesis chapter 38, read it, looked up and said, what in the world did I just read? You, if you've never heard this before, but you've been here with us over the last number of weeks as we've been walking through Genesis, you're probably going, as I've walked through this, you're going to have that same reaction to this text. It in many ways seems very out of place, not just within the whole story, but very out of place in this particular spot. Why is this Genesis 38? Because Genesis 37 introduced a new section of the story of Genesis to us. It introduced a new primary focus, and that is Joseph, the second to youngest son of Jacob, who has dreams from the Lord in Genesis 37 that his brothers and even his father and mother would bow down to him. As we saw last week, Genesis 37 ends with his the, brother, the jealousy of his brothers rising to the point where they seek to first kill him and then profit off of selling him into slavery. The final verse of Genesis 37 ends on a cliffhanger that Joseph, our primary focus, is now in Egypt, having been sold into slavery into Potiphar's house. Now, Genesis 39 tells us what's going to happen to Joseph in Potiphar's house, and it is one of the more popular stories in all of Genesis. It will probably be easier to preach next week than this week. But then we have this break 
in between the story of Joseph being sold into slavery and what happens to him in slavery, this break where we see Judah at his absolute worst. So we have to first ask, why is this story here? Why did Moses, the author of Genesis, choose to put this story in this place? Well, first, it's important to note that this is a necessary story. We need to know this happened, and there is no better place to put it. It kind of operates as an aside, if you will. It spans probably two decades, this story does. Most of which would have happened, or all likely would have happened, from the time that Joseph was sold in slavery up through the point where his brothers meet him again in Egypt. So there's no real better place to put it. And if you're going to interrupt the story of Joseph, you might as well do it sort of as a literary cliffhanger. Our protagonist sold into slavery. What's going to happen to you? Well, we're not going to tell you. You'll have to tune in next week. But this story is necessary because Judah is, becomes the largest tribe during the Exodus. In Numbers chapter 1, we get this census, and people often ask, why do we have all, why do, you know, why does the book of Numbers even there when so much of it is dedicated to the number of people? Well, it helps us to understand the context within Moses is writing these first few books of the Bible. And Judah dwarfs the other tribes. The next closest tribe in size to the tribe of Judah is 20% smaller. Some of the tribes are half the size of Judah. Ultimately, Judah receives at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 49, the blessing from Jacob of royalty. It is through the line of Judah that the royal promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will ultimately be fulfilled. The story provides for us a moment of suspense. It continues the theme of unrighteousness of Joseph's brothers. We've already seen multiple accounts of unrighteousness amongst the sons of Jacob committing genocide and others. We also are provided here in Genesis 38 by, by placing this right before the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. Moses provides for us a direct contrast between how Judah handles his sexual sin and how Joseph will handle sexual temptation. So that answers the context question. Why is it here? And as we progress through the exegesis of this story and we, we look at what's happening in this account, it's important for us to keep in mind that God is the main actor in Genesis. That he is the one bringing about his plan, this, the beginning stages of his plan to redeem mankind. And that story is not put on hold in Genesis 38. God is still at work, even though God is not mentioned. And we'll see that by the time we get to the end. This account begins with a sinful start to the line of Judah, where Judah selects his own wife from the Canaanite people and father's children. As we saw in verses 1 through 5, after it says in verse 1, happened at that time. So this is giving us a, a relative time frame that around the time that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then his brothers go back uh, to Hebron and deceive Jacob, their father, about the death of uh, the supposed death of his beloved son, Joseph. 
We're told that Judah turns away. And he goes away from his brothers. He goes into the Canaanite land, befriends someone, and marries someone. He marries a woman. We're not told her name. She is simply known as the daughter of Shua. And he and Shua's daughter conceived three sons. And these three sons play a role within this story. But it begins here with this decision of Judah to go and take his own wife. If we remember back over the last several chapters, as we've looked at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's been important to note that they, the patriarch has always sent their son back to Abraham's homeland to take a wife. But the desire of the patriarchs to not have their children marry Canaanite women has now fallen by the wayside. We're not told here that, or anywhere else that Jacob gives instructions about not marrying Canaanite women as his father had done, really at the prodding of his own wife, but as his grandfather had done to his own son Isaac. Nor are we told that Judah even consulted his father. The pattern that we had seen of fathers being involved in the marriage of their sons within the patriarch's family is now gone. This is a warning to us about the things that we hold so dear and how we're supposed to instruct the next generations in, in what we hold dear and how quickly it can be lost and the instruction of the Lord to not marry women from the Canaanite tribes is now lost into the fourth generation after Abraham. And so Judah now has three sons. And Judah's, Judah's eldest sons, the oldest two, are wicked in the sight of the Lord, ultimately leaving a woman named Tamar childless. Pick up in verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Er, her, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Verses 6 through 10 of Genesis 38 contain a lot of information that's new to readers. If you are beginning to, if you know nothing of the Lord and you begin to read in Genesis 1 the story that God begins with, with creation of the world through the flood of Noah and then ultimately selecting Abraham to be the father of a great nation, there's some information here that you've never heard or seen before. The first is, this is the first time that, that the death of an individual is attributed to the Lord. The death of peoples was attributed to the Lord in uh, Noah's flood. But here, this is the first time that we're told because of a certain person, an individual person's unrighteousness, where it happened with both Er and Onan, that because of their unrighteousness, the Lord kills them. And so Judah 
marries his son. So you see a lot of time has passed. All this time is passing. Joseph's in Egypt. We don't know yet what's happening to Joseph. But now Judah's sons are old enough to marry. The first one, wicked in the sight of the Lord. We're not told what he does, but wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord kills him, widowing Tamar. Then we get the first introduction. Not only is this the first time we see the Lord killing an individual, but this is also the first introduction of what is known as Leverite marriage. This, this takes place three times. This is mentioned three times in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament. And this is the practice. It was a Near East practice, not just a Jewish practice, but one that took place in many Near Eastern cultures where when, if a husband were to die, leaving his wife childless, that his brothers would come in and have children with that woman, but they would not be considered his children. They would be considered the deceased brother's children, and they would receive the inheritance for their mother. And so, following that common practice of the day, Judah instructs his second son, Onan, to do that. But he is also wicked and evil and recognizes that by doing so, he's robbing from himself. It's the only reason he would do this, right? We're told in the passage that he recognizes that any children he has with Tamar would not be his children. And the fact that they would not be his children mean they're not going to enrich him. They're going to enrich his dead brother's widow. And so, In verse 9, without me having to give much explanation to it, he ensures that he never impregnates Tamar. And this is wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he is also put to death. So we see this unique practice of Leverite marriage. We see the Lord's uh, anger and wrath against unrighteousness, against the sons of Judah. And we have Tamar, childless with one husband now dead, having not given her children, and another deceiving her, also dying, and not giving her children. But then there's a twist. So we have, we have this, this woman who, 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 and we'll see here in a moment, is, is going to need justice, but justice doesn't happen. And out of fear, Judah, instead of protecting Tamar, deceives her and sends her away. Look at verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. This is the third son of Judah. For he fears that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah sins here. This, this passage, 30, chapter 38, begins with the sin of Judah by marrying a Canaanite woman. But his sin continues here in his deception of Tamar. And we must read this verse as intentionally deceptive. He further sins by not caring for his daughter-in-law, but deceptively sending her away with a promise that he has no intention to fulfill. And this will come about some years later. The story is going to pick up. And Judah is not going to sin for Tamar when his third son becomes old enough to bear children by her. And we're, we're given a hint of this here in this verse where it says, for he feared that he would die. Judah only had three sons. Two of them are already dead. One died after marrying Tamar. The other died because he did not do his duty to Tamar. So Judah's got this fear. If I marry my third son to her, he's also going to die. Then what's going to happen to my progeny? What's going to happen to my descendants? And so out of fear... He deceives and sends her away. Now, it was not customary 
for this woman to be sent away. It would have not have been a Hebrew practice, nor it would have been a common Near Eastern practice for a woman to be sent back to her father. But Judah does that anyway. He removes her from his household, sending her back to his father with a promise that he does not intend to fulfill. So here through the first 11 verses, what are we supposed to walk away with? How are we supposed to begin to process this information, understanding what's coming next? Judah is the unrighteous person in this story. His sons killed because of their unrighteousness. And their unrighteousness reflects upon their father. And we're supposed to read it that way. That this is a spiral into unrighteousness from a bad decision that just becomes worse and worse, ending in Judah deceiving Tamar just as Jacob, his father, had deceived people most of his life. So in this text, Judah is the bad guy. And we need to keep that in mind no matter what you hear next. Because Tamar is about to do something that's going to make you question her actions as well. But we must keep in mind, no matter what happens in these next verses, Judah is the unrighteous one, and that ultimately plays out to be so in the end. So next, we see Judah descends further into sin, and his deceit leads Tamar to despair. Pick up in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. All right, so Judah's unnamed wife has died. When Judah was, con- was comforted, so after the period of his mourning, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, And she had not been given to him in marriage. Now, obviously some time has passed. We already had one fast forward in the event uh, from the time that Judah has children to now these children are able to marry. And we have another fast forward in event in that Judah's wife has now died. He has mourned his wife and his youngest son is is now old enough to marry. We're not sure how much time has passed, but some has. And all of this time, Tamar has continued to maintain her widow status. We know this because verse 14 tells us she had on her widow garments. And she's bearing these widow garments and then she takes them off and covers herself with a veil. Now there's a lot of Near Eastern practice that's going on here that's important to note. I'm just going to give you the highlight, okay? Here's the highlight of it. Veils in that time in ancient Near East, the type of veil that's being described here was worn by prostitutes. And that's what needs to be seen here. She is, she is veiling herself, showing her availability. All right? So she's now changed her status from widow to prostitute. She's doing this, though, out of despair. And verse 14 is clear. She's doing this because she has saw, she has seen that Sheila has grown up. She knows how much time has passed, and she has not been given to him in marriage. Judah has never sent for her to come. So out of desperation, Tamar deceives Judah. Now, we already saw this 
happen in the life of Jacob on more than one occasion, that Jacob, whose name means deceiver, heel grabber, right, that the deceiver would become the deceived? Well, that's exactly what's going to happen in the next generation. Judah, the deceiver of Tamar, is now going to be deceived by her. But keep in mind, Judah is the unrighteous person in this story. Pick up in verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, right? And that's what that meant. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and took off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. So Tamar, desperate for a child disguises herself as a prostitute and has intercourse with her father-in-law. That's what happens in these verses. She knows that he's coming, so she seeks to deceive the one who has deceived her, dresses herself as a prostitute, and surely enough, he takes the bait. And in taking the bait, and it's important for the rest of the story, he promises that he'll send her Uh, A young goat, that's going to be the payment for her services as a prostitute, but he doesn't have the goat with him. So she says, okay, leave something in my, you'll need to leave something with me as, as a pledge, as a promise. And she asks for three things. And notice that she's the one that's asking for it. He says, what do you want me to give you? And she says, give me your signet and your cord and your staff. Now, a signet would have likely been either a ring. It would have been possibly something that hung around the neck that would have ascribed to his certain family. The same with his, with his cord and the same with his staff. All of these were personal items. All of these make someone easily identified. So that's what she asked for. She knows what she's doing. She asks for items that could be easily and certainly tied to Judah. And her scheme works. Her deception works. He does not recognize her. He goes into her. She conceives by him. He leaves those promised items with her. Now, I have stressed in this message so far that it is Judah who is unrighteous. And you may ask the question, well, wait a second. Tamar is also being deceptive. And when we've seen, uh, even in the life of Jacob, where the deceiver was deceived, I was really clear that both people were being sinful at that time. And it seems as if I am seeking to excuse Tamar, at least lighten her burden of guilt. And let me explain to you why I am doing that. We read this text from a Western Americanized mindset where we read it and think, okay, she's a widow, that's sad, but there are a lot of other options available for her. Because that's the case in America. Someone who's widowed in America, in our culture, they have a lot of other options available to them. That would not have been the case in this land. That was not the case in the ancient culture. There is a reason that the Leverite marriage was practiced not just within the Hebrews but within multiple other cultures because it was the way to ensure that a widow was cared for. 
If you want to know more about this, go and read the Old Testament book of Ruth. It's a short book. It's a lovely story pointing us to the work of God and the redemptive plan of God. I preached through, Luke, uh, through Ruth several years ago. It's on our website. If you want, I think it was only four sermons. So if you want to go listen to that, I talk about the Leverite marriage. I talk about what God's doing there as well. But it was the way for a widow to be secure is for her to have children without an heir. She's destitute. Whether that heir comes from the loins of her husband or through one of his brother-in-laws, without an heir, she has nothing. She is at the will and the good graces of anyone who would seek to care for her. It was not her, her father's responsibility to care for her anymore. It would have not been her brother's responsibility to care for her any longer. She would have nothing. And we have to read this with that in our mind, that this woman would have nothing. And in that despair, in that desperation, in that moment where she recognizes if I don't have an heir through the line, through the family line that I have married into, I will have nothing. Tamar takes matters into her her own hands. And Moses is writing for this for us in this way, for us to recognize the desperation and despair this woman has. We're not intended to excuse the act of prostitution. That's not the point of the story. So we have to set that aside. Well, it feels like that's what we're doing. We have to set that aside for a moment and recognize the state that Tamar was in. And out of desperation, she makes this move and it works. And ultimately, her deception is justified. The story continues and Judah attempts to hide his sin, but it becomes public anyway. Verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge for the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult, cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the thing as, your, as her own. Or or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So Judah, whose actions are continuing to show his sinfulness here, obviously recognizing that this was not an action he should have taken, not even knowing who Tamar is at this point, but recognizing that he should not have slept with a prostitute, doesn't even own up to himself, but sends the payment with his friend, Sends the payment with someone of those same people, right? He sends it with a Canaanite who goes to this Canaanite village and says, where's the cult prostitute? Now, this is the first time she, this prostitute was called a cult prostitute. There were, there were two ways of referring to a woman who worked in this line of work back in that day. The one was just someone who would actually sell themselves for money. The other is one who would do it for their false god. The the cult prostitute was, at least in some ways, respectable within the community. The other was not. So while Tamar was not pretending to be a cult prostitute, that's what his friend goes and asks for because it would have been even more embarrassing to ask for the other kind. So you can see this 
this attempt to cover up what's already been done. He sends his friend to do it. He sends his friend to ask for the wrong kind of prostitute. And they say none is here. And finally he says, well, then she just keep the stuff because we can't go investigating anymore. Why? Or we shall be laughed at. And then he seeks to excuse his sin. He says, I sent you with the young goat and you didn't find her. I've washed my hands of it. I'm done. See, I'm done. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. She can just keep it. I don't want to be laughed at. He knows his actions were sinful. He's trying to cover them up. He's seeking to hide them. He knows that people will look down on him for it, and yet he does it anyway. Now, we get to verse 24. Three months passes. We get to verse 24, and all of a sudden, this thing turns. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Remember, she's still dressed like a widow. Nobody's known that she took those widow clothes on. She put the widow clothes back on. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. We must see the hypocrisy in Genesis 38, 24. You must see what Judah is confronted with here. That that now three months later, she is beginning to show, it's obvious now she's pregnant and she's still in her widow clothes. And there would have been no explanation for this widow to have become pregnant other than immorality. And news travels from the village where she lives to wherever it is Judah has made camp. We know it's not in the same place because we're told he's traveling through there. So he's somewhere in the vicinity, but news gets to him, news comes to him, and watch his reaction. Bring her out and let her be burned. When confronted with immorality, the supposed immorality of his daughter-in-law, his immediate action, reaction is, burn her. Folks, this is a log and a speck situation. And if you know anything about the Sermon on the Mountain where Jesus is talking about judging others and he says to remove the log, the plank out of your own eye so you can then see clearly to remove the speck of dust out of your Neighbors, that's exactly what's happening here. Judah's walking around with this big old log in his eye. He, he is the one who acted deceptively from the beginning. He is the one who went into a prostitute. He is the one who put Tamar in this position. And his immediate reaction is judgment, burn her. If you need any more argument for the fact that he is the unrighteous one and we need to see her actions as justified. It's that right there. That this guy is willing to look past his own sin and yet still operate in such condemning judgment against his daughter-in-law. Let her be burned. And Tamar finally confronts Judah. It gets all the way to the point, you'll notice in the text, where she's being brought out, meaning this, she's being brought out to be burned. This wouldn't have been done in her village. It would have been done in Judah's household because it is against Judah's household that she has supposedly sinned. And so she's brought out. You can picture this, right? I mean, this woman is on the way to be burned. And she sends a message and says, I'm pregnant by the one who these things belong 
this signet, this cord, and this staff, who do these belong to? Now we're at a pivotal moment here in the story because once again, a son of Jacob is confronted in his sin. Once again, we see great deception and great wickedness done on the part of Jacob's sons. But something happens that is unique. It's not the same thing his brothers had done in their previous accounts of sin. Judah, in verse 26, recognizes his unrighteousness. He identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. For the first time, we see one of Jacob's sons repentant. For the first time, we see a hint of understanding, an ownership of responsibility and accountability faced now with burn this girl or own up to your sin. Finally, one of the sons of Jacob does the right thing. He owns his sin. Judah's repentance matters here in the story. It matters for the story that God is telling because he's not the oldest son of Jacob, but he is going to be the, the one who receives the greatest blessing of him in chapter 49. He is the one who is ultimately going to be in the royal line for the people of Israel. And so his repentance matters. His older brothers failed to repent. And even all the way up to the end of Jacob's life, he still has nothing but negative, to say, negative things to say about Judah's older brothers. But not Judah. We can trace this back here, that there is at least a recognition of sin and to say, she is justified, I am not. She acted righteously, I acted in wickedness. So while his repentance matters, the one who is truly justified in the story is Tamar. She finally receives justice. She had Think about what this woman has gone through. The loss of a husband, the deception of a brother-in-law, the deception of a father-in-law, being treated as a prostitute by that father-in-law, being sentenced to being burned by that father-in-law, and finally, justice. Tamar played the long game here. She finally receives the justice that she is due. And she becomes the mother of the line of Judah. In another unique birth story, twins are born to Judah and Tamar. Look at 26 through the end of the chapter. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put, on, put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which literally means bursting forth. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So just as we saw in chapter 25, a unique birth surrounding twins, Jacob and Esau, one being born second and still receiving the birthright and the blessing of his father Isaac. Now, into another generation, another unique birth, another set of twins being born, and one 
kind of pokes his hand out. And they tie a little ribbon around it because it was important who was born first. But then the hand comes back and here comes the one without the ribbon tied around it. Perez, bursting forth, who ultimately becomes the one who continues the line of his father, Judah, by his mother, Tamar, who received her justice in the end. So what? While we must recognize and repent of our unrighteousness, the Lord is able to work through it to accomplish his purposes. There are two parts of this application, and I want to be very clear about the first one. In a moment, we will see how God's, God works through the unrighteousness in this story and even unrighteousness in our world, even times unrighteousness committed by us. But the early stages of this story with the death of Er and Onan sh- should serve as a warning to us about our own unrighteousness. The confrontation of Judah and recognizing his unrighteousness and we finally seeing a son of Jacob repent for it should serve as a warning to us. We don't get to blame God's providence for our unrighteousness. We don't get to look at God and say, well, you made me like this. I'm I'm, I'm just going to have this temptation and I'm going to trust you to be able to work through it and I'm going to just keep going on sinning. Well, there were two boys in this story who just kept going on sinning and the Lord took them out of this world, showing to us his wrath against the unrighteous. Yes, God can and does work through unrighteousness and even at times our own unrighteousness. And thank God for it. Because if it demanded a fully sanctified righteous preacher to preach his word, there was nobody that could rightly stand in this place today. I certainly couldn't. And I would imagine none of you could either. And yet... We still have the warning against unrighteousness in this text, and we must see it, that God, in his righteousness, judges the wicked. So if you hear this today, a story about deception, a story about greed, a story that so clearly shows us the unrighteousness of man, then recognize your own and repent of it. Do what Judah did. Swallow your pride and be willing to say, I need to remove the log from my eye. I need to be willing to to see my own unrighteousness and turn away from it. Because it is only from turning away from our unrighteousness that we can be saved from the wrath of God. It is only from turning from the unrighteousness that we can receive the wonderful blessing of eternal life in Christ Jesus. But while this is a story of unrighteousness, it is also a story of the Lord at work, who is not mentioned in it, but he is working through it. And the evidence of his working through it is not found in the chapter, it's found in the rest of the Bible, in some pretty unique places. The first one is actually in the book of Ruth that I told you you should go read if you're interested in a similar story that ends a whole lot better. Verses 18 through 22 of Ruth chapter 4, which is kind of the end of Ruth. We're we're told this story of of Ruth, and then we're we're told this. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. They say, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well... David is king. (laughs) 
David is king of Israel, sitting on the throne of God. The royal line that God promises to David would be restored and never end. And who is his great, 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 great grandfather? Perez, the oldest son of the union between Judah and Tamar. That what God is doing in Genesis 38 is not fully shown to us. It's shown to us in promise in Genesis 49. I've skipped that. But it's shown to us in fulfillment in Ruth 4. That it's in David. That this ultimately ends up, from an Old Testament perspective, the culmination of God's working is David. But it doesn't end there, Christian. We go to Matthew chapter 1. Another genealogy, another place we read in the Bible, we're like, why is this here? Why does this matter? Oh, church, it matters. Matthew begins his book. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then notice what he does. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. None of those other mothers were mentioned. Do you notice as, as important of a role as Sarah played in the story? It's not an Abraham fathered Isaac by Sarah. We're not told of Sarah or Rebecca. We're not told of these people. But here, Matthew tells us of Tamar. You know, Matthew does this in his genealogy account in his gospel. He actually mentions five women. Tamar is just the first. The second is Rahab who's a harlot, Ruth, who I've already mentioned, a Moabite widow, not a Jew, a Gentile, Bathsheba, the wife of another, taken by David the king, ultimately, finally leading to Mary, a virgin girl in Galilee, a little backwoods area that nobody thought was important for anything, all of it leading where? To Jesus. All of it leading to Jesus. That how do we see God at work in Genesis 38? We see God at work in Genesis 38 because what happens in Genesis 38, God is able to use even in the vast unrighteousness of this story to give us Jesus. This so difficult passage, the one we look at and say, why? Why, why do I need to know this information? You need to know it because it's crucial to the point. That God is redeeming mankind from their unrighteousness. And ultimately, it is even woven through that unrighteousness that leads us to Jesus Christ himself. Because God, just as Tamar played the long game, so is God. Listen, church, God's at work. He's not done bringing about his righteous judgment in this world. I know I've gone long. I'm going to keep going for just a minute, okay? Sorry. God's not done bringing his righteous judgment in this world. He's he's not finished doing it. You see, Jesus is the culmination of it. I said David was that kind of Old Testament culmination. He's like the spike, you know. Then we get to Jesus, and the spike just goes on forever. And now it's through Jesus that God is continuing to work his work of righteousness and bring about his justice in our world still today. And we see justice done in this small little way in the life of Tamar, that she goes from burn her to being the father 
of the line of the greatest tribe of Israel, or the mother of the greatest tribe of Israel. The story of redemption in this account is a story of justice, and the Lord is a just God. He is the one who rights wrongs. He may not do it in your time frame, though. You can imagine Tamar (laughs) desperately wanting justice long before she had to go to the extents that she had to go to to receive it. You can't imagine that she enjoyed these moments, and yet ultimately justice is done. We serve a God who is righting wrongs in our world, who is bringing about his righteous justice. Isaiah chapter 61, the prophet says, uh, speaking for the Lord, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. That applies to Perez the daughter of this unholy union, in Gen- the son of this unholy union of Tamar and Judah in Genesis 38. And hear me something today, Christian, that applies to you as well. That you are an offspring that the Lord shall bless because we, even Gentiles, have been brought into the family of God. We are now in this same line through Jesus Christ. It is through Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, that God works his righteous justice in our world. And hear me something, non-believer. Friend, I appeal to you today, the only way for you to, to escape the judgment of the wicked is to turn from your sin and turn towards Christ who will save you. And this is what the, the, the righteous justice of God looks like. It looks like me not actually getting what I deserve. Because you know what I deserve? Is eternal death and separation from God in a real place of tor- torment called hell. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. If nobody's ever told you you deserve that, friend, hear me today. You deserve that. But Jesus taking death upon his shoulders, dying in your place, has made a way for you to experience the righteousness of God through Jesus. Believe that today, my friend, and be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of difficult and hard passages, we see such beauty in the justice and mercy and righteousness of our God. Would sinners today repent, confronted by their own unrighteousness? Would the church rejoice in how you work, even working in our failures, to accomplish your noble purposes? Would we, God, see your hand at work in your scripture and in our lives and in our church and in our world? And we pray, God, for your righteous justice to be done, not ours, because we're flawed and we're failed. But you, O oh God, are right in all your ways and all you do. You bring us into your family so we can experience that. Would, would men and women and boys and girls believe that this morning? I pray and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.